We're starting a new series today. We just finished up Galatians last week. And today we're starting our journey through the book of Acts, which is going to be out of this world. It's going to be amazing. Okay, so Acts 1, verses 1 to 11. You can look on your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. Acts 1, 1 to 11. Here we go. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come here today with open Bibles and open hearts, and I pray that you would speak what we need to hear today, and that we would hear your voice through your word and your spirit this morning, and that we would be impacted, that we would respond accordingly, appropriately to what you have to say this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 55, there's this verse that many of us have heard this before. In fact, this is a promise that we love. And it says, God's word will not return to him empty, but it will accomplish that for which he sends it out. And this week I was praying as we are approaching the book of Acts, what what does God want to send this word out for? And of course, there's the general things God wants to do in all parts of the scripture, where he wants to make us more like Jesus. He wants to produce in us the fruit of the spirit. He wants to transform our lives. But I also think when we approach a certain text or a certain book in the Bible or a certain text, that there is a particular thing God wants to accomplish. And when we approach the book of Acts, I think, well, at least God wants us to see the glory of Christ the power of Christ, the power of the gospel as it advances in the early church. But I also think what God wants to accomplish through this is that he wants for us to have our, um, our faith raised in anticipation of what God could do in our time and even through our lives. Michael Green, in his book, 30 Years That Changed the World, it's a great, great title, The opening words of this book, here's what he says. Three crucial decades in world history. That's all it took. In the years between A.D. 33 
and A.D. 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion in the world and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe, and it has had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course, on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women, and then the Spirit came. A dozen men, a handful of women, the Spirit was poured out, and the rest is history. And the book of Acts covers those 30 years, 30, 31 years, from 80, 33 to 64 If God did so much with a small band of people without anything going for them, these guys had nothing from a worldly perspective going for them, nothing at all. And if God did so much through them, what might he be pleased to do through us over the next 30 years? Over the next 30 years, what could God do through us? For these men and women in the first century, the coming of the Spirit changed everything. It changed everything. It set them on fire. And the Spirit of God sent them like thunderbolts into the world. And they ended up being used by Christ to change the world. So I want our expectations to be raised as to what is possible with God. So in these first 11 verses, which tell us about Christ's final 40 days on earth, it kind of sets the stage for the entire book of Acts. And these 11 verses, they tell us what the controlling theme of Acts is, what the main thrust of the book of Acts is. And the main thrust of the book of Acts is this. It's the continuing ministry of Jesus through his spirit-empowered disciples or spirit-empowered followers. It's the continuing, ongoing work and ministry of Jesus through his followers empowered by the Holy Spirit. For us to understand the book of Acts, we need to see this. Others will get caught, we'll, we'll, we'll read it, we'll go through stories, but we'll kind of get, we'll lose sight of the main thrust. Furthermore, for us to understand the ongoing mission of the church, which includes us, we need to understand this. So here's what I want to do. I wanna, we're going to look at three things that show us the overarching theme of the book of Acts in these 11 verses. The overarching theme of the book of Acts, again, is the continuing ministry of Christ through his spirit-empowered followers. So we're going to look at three things. First, the purpose of Luke writing the book of Acts. We see that in the first two verses. Second, we're going to look at the importance of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And third, we're going to look at what I think is the central verse in the entire book of Acts. So let's just go one at a time. First, what, what is Luke's purpose? We might say God's purpose, but he used Luke to write this. What is Luke's purpose for writing the book of Acts? And I believe Luke says in the first couple of verses that his purpose is the history, to give a history of the continuation of Christ's ministry. The opening verses of this book read like a story already in progress. And there's a good reason for that, because it is a story already in progress. The author of the book of Acts is Luke, of course, but Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Many have referred to these two books, Luke and Acts, 
they've kind of combined them. They've called them Luke Acts or Luke slash Acts because they belong together. And we know they belong together because both of these books written by the same author are written to the same person. In verse 1, Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus. So he's writing to a man named Theophilus. And he's referring to the first book that he wrote, which was the book of Luke. And if you read the introduction to the book of Luke, you'll notice in verse 3, he addresses the same person. O excellent Theophilus. He writes that book too. So both of these books go together. From the introduction of Luke and Acts, it seems clear that what Luke set out to do was to write a history of the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, and then Jesus continuing to work through his church. Back in those days, they would, they would write on these papyrus scrolls, and they could only write so much on these scrolls before these scrolls, if you roll them up, got really large and laborious to carry around. So Luke probably broke them up on two scrolls. So we have two books. But in Luke's mind, this is one story. One story, Luke and Acts. Look at what Luke says in verse 1. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up. I love how it combines the doing and the teaching ministries of Christ. Jesus' ministry didn't just consist of doing miracles and acts of mercy. It certainly included that. We see that all throughout the Gospels. And it didn't just include teaching or wasn't just a teaching ministry. It was both doing and teaching. Jesus did both and they always went hand in hand. We see this all throughout all four gospels, one place, I shouldn't say especially, one place that you see this totally abundantly clearly is in Matthew chapters four to seven. At the end of Matthew four, Jesus, there's a thronging crowd coming to him. And he heals their sick and their diseased and their epileptics. And he casts out demons. And it says the crowds were just thronging to him. And then in chapter 5, at the very beginning, it says Jesus saw the crowds. And he went up on a mountain and sat down to teach. There was teaching. There was doing. And then what we see in Matthew 5 to 7 is probably the longest sermon in the New Testament. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' ministry was one of doing and teaching. In this first verse, Luke says that, th- that in his first book, the book of Luke, that book was about what Jesus began to do and teach. I think implying that the book of Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and teach. After he was taken up. The first book, Luke, was about what Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up. The book of Acts is about what Jesus still did and continued to do and teach after he was taken up to heaven. So Jesus is still the main character in the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts, Luke claims that as this Christian movement is spreading, Jesus himself is working among them. Jesus himself is acting in their midst. We sang this song earlier about the the name of Jesus is a light and it's alive. Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter four. This is after 
Peter and John were going to the temple. They see this lame man who asks them for money, and they, they, don't, they don't give him money, but they, they heal him, which is a lot better than money, huh? And, um, and the religious leaders didn't like that, and so they pulled John and Peter aside, and they said, you must not do this anymore. And Peter responds to them, and he says this, Let it be known. To all of you that, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, it is, excuse me, it is by his name, by him, this man is standing before you. Well, it is the name of Jesus, and by him, that this lame man was healed. So Acts is about the continuing ministry of Christ. And Jesus continues to work through his church up to this present day. What was this testimony we heard today? It was Jesus acting in Jenny's life. It is Jesus ministering deeply to Jenny and through Jenny to us. Jesus is continuing to act and work in his body in the church. If you opened your Bible to the first page of the book of Acts and to the title page, you might see, you probably do, uh, that the title given to Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. And I, we understand why it's given that. that. That name wasn't given by God or even by Luke. It's a traditional name handed down. But a better name might be the Acts of Jesus through his Spirit-empowered followers. The Acts of Jesus through his disciples empowered by the Spirit. This certainly is the reason Luke wrote the book of Acts. It's to give us the history of what Christ continued to do in his church. Next, let's look at the importance of the ascension. In verses 9 to 11, we see that at the end of these 40 days, Jesus is visibly lifted up. Just a sidebar. I find it interesting. They're just sitting there. Their jaws probably hit, hit the ground and they're just sitting there with their mouths open looking at him going up. And these angels say, what are you doing? Stop looking up in the sky. Get going, right? That has nothing to do with what I'm about to say. But anyway, I just, I found that interesting this week. Jesus was taken into heaven as he ascended and there he sits on a throne at God's right hand. In this text, we see the ascension, but what does the ascension mean? What what does it mean that Jesus has ascended? What is the significance for his people? What is the significance for us? We don't think a lot about the ascension of Jesus. We have holidays for his birth, his death, resurrection. We think a lot about the birth of Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God. We celebrate it at Christmas time. We think a lot about, and right we should, about the death of Jesus. And we think a lot about the resurrection of Jesus. But, but we often don't think much about the ascension. And it's such an important event. I was thinking this week, this might be part of our problem. One of the reasons for our lack of zeal and effectiveness in the world might be because we don't live in light of the ascension of Jesus Christ. That we don't live in, in, in the light that, that our, our risen Lord Jesus has ascended. Okay, what does it mean, though? Ascension is a spatial word, right? If I, if I ascend the steps of a stage, 
I am spatially higher than you. But of course, when we talk about the ascension of Christ, it's a spatial word that actually has a deeper meaning. In other words, the ascended Jesus does not relate to us like someone on the fifth floor of a building relates to someone on the, on the third floor of a building. He's not just higher than us spatially. Rather, he relates to us like a king does his subjects. But not just any king. Jesus is an infinitely exalted and sovereign king with universal power and authority. Total power and authority. Psalm chapter 24 is one of several what are called ascension psalms. In fact, Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 24 the song of the ascension. Listen to these words that I believe are pointing forward to the ascension of Christ. Verses 7 to 10 says this, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. It's an amazing psalm that points, I think, to the ascension of Christ. It speaks of a conquering king coming back from battle. And the gates of heaven are summoned to open for this king so that he may enter and sit on his throne, having defeated all of his enemies. Psalm 110.1, David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. Again, speaking of Christ ascending and sitting at the Father's right hand. Jesus, the God-man, rules from heaven. It's not just, not just the invisible God, but Jesus as the God-man rules from heaven. And he rules for our good and for his glory. But there's more to the ascension. That's not it. Because Jesus has entered heaven victorious over sin, over the powers of darkness, over death itself, the New Testament tells us that he has received a gift from the Father that he then releases upon his church. And that takes us to what I believe is is the central verse of the book of Acts. When Jesus ascended, it's like this nuclear bomb detonated and reverberated throughout the whole world because the promise of verse 8 came to pass. Jesus ascended, and the promise of verse 8 came to pass. The ascension is absolutely necessary for verse 8. Acts 1.8 is, I think, the key verse to understanding the entire book of Acts. It's the key to understanding how this little group of people experienced such rapid and amazing growth, though they had no political power, they had no money, they had no proven leadership, they had no technology to propagate the gospel, and they faced enormous obstacles. It was a brand new religion, right? With unfathomable truth claims they were trying to spread to people. 
Not only that, but they had, they experienced such hostile opposition. And yet we see this, we see the, this little band of people and their message and this movement spreading like wildfire. It's because of Acts 1.8. The fulfillment of Acts 1.8 is the detonation of the ascension, which then changed the world. So it's not only important to see that this is, this is the central theme for the book of Acts. It's also important that, 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 that we get Acts 1.8 into our being so that we may faithfully follow in our first century forebears' footsteps. Here's what, let me back up to verse 6. Let me read Acts 1, verses 6 to 8 again. So when they came together, they asked the Lord Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus and his disciples come together, and his disciples, I wonder if Jesus is like, oh my goodness, am I making a horrible mistake here? Their their mind still is on this earthly kingdom, right? Right? Are you going to restore the kingdom now to Israel? Are you going to bring in with your military might power and overthrow Rome and restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, Jesus, said, Jesus did not say, oh, what are you guys thinking about that for? That's never going to happen. He didn't say that. He said, none of your business. The timing of that is none of your business. Get your mind off the timing of that. He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's none of your business. Here's what your business is. You're going to receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We're not to be looking up at the sky to look for Jesus to to return. We're not to be trying to figure out dates and see if we can narrow it down, just pinpoint it down. There's, like, there's this guy, I can't remember his name. But like three times in 30 years, he said, this is the date Jesus is returning. He was wrong every time, right? In the time, excuse me, um, having ascended, Jesus continues his work through his witnesses, through those who are his witnesses, to his followers, to those who belong to him, called to be witnesses. So in, our, in the time we have left, here's what I want to do. I want to I look at some different aspects of a witness. This verse is so important for us to understand. And not just a part of it, but all of it. Not just a little piece of it, which I probably have focused on a little piece of it, and not the whole part, not the whole thing. So let's look at some aspects of a witness of Jesus. Okay? First, every believer is called to be a witness. Here's what Jesus said. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Who's the you? 
Certainly it's those Jesus is originally speaking to at this meeting, right? He's got his disciples with him. It's those 12 that were with him at that time. And there certainly is a special sense in which they are witnesses in a way that we are not. They saw the risen Christ bodily. We have not seen him in that way. But is this for us as well? Is this promise or this prophecy that Jesus is speaking, is it for us as well? Yes, of course it is. Every Christian is to be empowered by the Spirit in order to bear witness to Christ. Notice three things. First, the promise is, for, is to, to witness to the end of the earth, which hasn't happened yet. So it's for believers today. Second, notice when Jesus says it's none of your business to be concerned about when the kingdom's coming. Your business is to witness. In other words, the kingdom's going to come someday. But until then, you're called to be a witness. And third, I believe it's a gentle rebuke by the angels in verses 10 and 11 to stop looking up at the clouds. Stop standing around. Looking at the clouds. So we're all called to be witnesses of Christ. Second, witnesses or the strength of a witness is in the power of the Holy Spirit. Where does the strength for witnessing come? It comes through the power of the Spirit. It does not come by human charisma or ingenuity or savviness or whatever. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. The strength of of the witness does not come from self. I mean, think about this. The velocity with which the church spread and the way in which it spread so expansively, so quickly, it cannot be attributed to the cleverness of human beings. But it must be attributed to the Holy Spirit. Over and over again in the book of Acts, we don't see groups of people getting together, calling a committee, doing these careful analysis and planning, but we do see over and over and over again these words filled with the Holy Spirit. And almost every time, I think there's 14 times that, that phrase or a variation of that phrase is used in the book of Acts. And almost every time, what accompanied that event was powerful witnessing to Jesus. Notice the language Jesus uses even here in these first 11 verses as he's talking to his disciples. First in verse 5, Jesus talks about what, it, what, what had been spoken beforehand that, that John baptized with water, right? John would dip people in water, immerse people in water in the Jordan River. But Jesus said, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will be immersed in, drenched with, soaked in the Holy Spirit. And then I love the phrase, you, you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you. I remember 10 or 12 years ago, maybe further back than that, I heard a guy named Jim Cimbala talking. And I don't think he was talking about this verse, but he says, 
when the New Testament says the Spirit fell on them, he says if someone falls on you, you know it. Even if my, even if when Silas was two years old, if he would have fallen on me, I would have known. In 1867, a guy named Alfred Nobel, he was a physicist. He started the Nobel Peace Prize Award. He discovered a power stronger than anything the world had known up to that time. He asked a friend who was a Greek scholar what the Greek word for explosive power was. And his friend answered, dynamis. And Nobel said, ah, that's what I'm going to call my discovery. You can probably guess what his discovery was. Dynamite. Jesus is saying in verse 8 here, you will receive explosive power. Dynamite power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive great power when the Spirit comes. And you will be my witnesses. It's something far beyond human personality, human giftedness. I mean, think about these disciples. I take great comfort in this because, well, anyways, think about these disciples. I find great comfort in thinking about the disciples because just a few weeks prior to this, they were running for their lives, scared, hiding, Peter, the night of Jesus' crucifixion, was cowering before a young servant girl. And Jesus said, you, you wimpy, scared weaklings are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. This should encourage us. They needed the power. They needed a power outside of themselves, and so do we. And so the strength of a witness is the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's more. The path of a witness. The path of a witness is suffering. You see, if, 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 if all we talked about was the power of a, of a witness is the Holy Spirit, explosive dynamite power, we might think, but we wouldn't get this if we read the book of Acts, but we might think it's just outward victory on all sides. It wasn't that way. The path of a witness of Jesus Christ is suffering. Do you know what the Greek word for witness is? You may not. It's martis. It's where we get the word martyr. And we know that, that of the 12, deci- 12 apostles, all of them, with the exception of John, were martyred for their faith. And as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see there, there's powerful things happening through the Holy Spirit. And yet, alongside that, all along the way, there is persecution and painful suffering for the followers of Christ. We see these tandem truths, the explosive power of the Spirit and the hostile persecution of the opponents of the gospel in the book of Acts. It's not either or, it's both and. The history of the church has seen this. The history of the church has seen 
from the very beginning, from the pages of Acts all the way to this day, that the church has advanced through suffering and difficulty. A Christian in the second century named Tertullian, he wrote a a book called The Apology. And he lived in a Roman province and he he was looking at the hostile, brutal persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire at that time. And, he, and, he, and he, he saw something very interesting and peculiar. He said the more hostile Christians are treated and the more they are killed, the more Christianity spreads. And he wrote this to the governor of the province he lived in. He wrote this, kill us, torture us, condemn us, Grind us to dust. The more we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. And then he said this. Maybe you've heard this phrase before. The blood of martyrs is the church's seed. And this has been the history of the church. Richard Vermbrand started Voice of the Martyrs. He was a pastor in communist Romania. Um, I think he spent like 14 years in prison. Yeah, there's a, his most, most famous book is Tortured for Christ, a great book. There's actually a movie coming out on that, I think, coming, coming up next month. He said this, A man really believes not what he recites in a creed or what he sings on a screen, but only the things he is willing to die for. And these early Christians, when the Spirit came upon them, And they saw Christ risen from the dead. They believed. They really believed. And in the face of hostility, when people wanted to harm them and they stood before them, they continued to bear witness to Jesus. Now listen, it's highly unlikely that anyone here will ever be called upon to die for your faith in Christ. But you probably will be made fun of. You might be called a fool. I got an email last week. This guy just berating me. Can't believe I'm such an idiot for the things I believe. That's not too bad, right? You, you, you might be unfriended on Facebook. Oh my goodness. <clears throat> okay, I'm joking. But honestly, you might suffer financially and socially for your faith in Christ. But Paul makes it clear that to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will lead to persecution, 2 Timothy 2, 12. The path of a witness is suffering. Next, the passion of a witness is Jesus Christ. The passion of a witness is Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus says. You will be my witness. You will be my witnesses. Did you know everybody's a witness? Everybody witnesses about something. You are are a witness of, of the thing that you are most excited about. And whatever you talk about and whatever you want to spread to others, you are a witness about that. It may be a sports team. We have some sports fans here today. 
Amen? It may be a new beauty product. It may be a new workout program, a new, a new toy that you have, or you may just be someone who promotes yourself. But whatever you promote foremost, you are a witness of. Jesus said the passion of his witnesses will be him. It'll be Christ. He will be our passion. Not a particular church or denomination or a movement within the church or a style of worship or a style of worship service or a pet doctrine or anything else. It will be Christ himself. That will be the passion of a witness. In Acts chapter 4, speaking to the authorities who wanted to harm them physically. I mean, you can imagine Peter and John standing before this council of religious leaders who hate Jesus and hate them. They're gnashing their teeth. They're saying, you better not preach this anymore. And here's what they said. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. They were compelled by the Spirit to do so, to speak of Christ. He was their passion. And of course, this makes perfect sense since the Spirit himself is also passionate about witnessing of Jesus. Jesus said of the Spirit, He, speaking of the Spirit, will bear witness of me. If you would be a witness of Jesus Christ, He must be your passion, your singular boast. Remember the message last week, the last Chapter in Galatians, chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, He has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For what we preach is not ourselves. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for his sake. We don't preach ourselves. We don't preach, we don't preach our church. We don't preach a pet doctrine we love and hold dear. We preach Christ. He's, our, he's what we're excited about. He is our passion. The passion of a witness is Jesus Christ himself and nothing else. The primary passion. We, we, we love other things. Don't get me wrong. I'm going for the eagles too. <clears throat> but we preach Christ. He is our passion. And finally, the location of a witness is everywhere one is needed. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, Jesus with his disciples, they were in Jerusalem, maybe right outside of Jerusalem. So he said, where you are now, and then spread out a little bit in all Judea, which was the kind of like the, the state, you might say, or the region Jerusalem was part of, and then spread out a little further from that, Samaria, which kind of entered into quasi-Gentile region, and then the end of the earth, which was to all the nations of the world. So where are you now? Where you are now 
and just spread outward, out, outward from there. That's where you're to be a witness, where you are now and spread out from there. Do you know someone in your sphere of influence, where you work in your neighborhood? Do you know someone who needs to know who the true Jesus is? Of course we do. We all do. That is why you're in that person's life. It's to bear witness to them. It's to tell them who the real Jesus is and what he's like and what he's done for them. The most amazing news in the world of God's love through Christ poured out for undeserving sinners. Are there still people in the world who have not heard of Christ? Then witnesses need to go there. Jesus is clear. His witnesses will bring the gospel from Jerusalem in the first century to the ends of the earth before the end comes. Matthew 24, 14 says this. In fact, whenever there's a lot of hype about the return of Christ, I always think of this verse. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will go to all the earth as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. It hasn't happened yet. There are lots of nations, not not geographic countries, but tribes and languages who have not heard the gospel yet. And Jesus said, my witnesses will go there and then the end will come. The location of a witness is everywhere a witness is needed. Here in Ankeny, in Iowa, in the United States, and in Zimbabwe, and Afghanistan, and Guatemala, and Canada, and everywhere a witness is needed. So what should our response be to this? Do you believe Jesus is still at work in the world, in his church, here among us? Do you believe that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and that his spirit has been poured out, then you are called to be a witness empowered by the Holy Spirit. You are not exempt from this. Not one person is. I find it interesting, Acts 1.8 comes to us as a promise or as a prophecy, right? You, this will happen. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. But I think it'd be wrong to not also hear in this a command. Because it seems like this is probably Luke's version of the Great Commission. Right? Matthew 28 Great Commission, Mark 16, the Great Commission, John chapter 20, the Great Commission. There, there is one in Luke chapter 24, but also I think it's just repeated here. You're going to receive power when the Spirit comes, and you're going to bear witness. I think we also need to hear this as a command because it is our responsibility to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a promise of, of empowerment, but also a command to heed and listen to and be obedient in bringing the good news of what Jesus has done. So, let's end like this. Let's humble ourselves and let's ask the Lord to change us so that our lives 
look more and more like the lives of these early Christians. As we go through the book of Acts, I hope you're challenged by this. And you end up on your face before God over and over and over again. And say, oh, Lord, I want to know you like this. I want to see you work like this. And let's seek the empowerment of the spirit that these early Christians knew and walked in that we may see Christ's continuing work and so that we may discover the effectiveness that they had by which in 30 short years, God used them, or I should say Christ through them, changed the world. Let's pray.